Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, the literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. On Christmas morning, 2020, the writer Barry Lopez died in Eugene, Oregon, surrounded by his family after a long battle with prostate cancer. Widely honored as one of our greatest writers about the natural world, in nonfiction classics such as Arctic Dreams, of Wolves and Men, and Horizon. For half a century, Barry traveled the globe, high Arctic to Antarctica, Oregon to Kenya, bringing back stories etched in luminous prose that explored our profound connections to the diverse, fragile planet we inhabit. Barry spoke at the 2019 Writers' Conference. In a minute, you'll be hearing some of what he had to say there. That's where he and I first met, though we'd been in correspondence before that, and he and my late stepfather, the poet and environmentalist W.S. Merwin, had long been friends and mutual admirers of each other's work. Still, when a month or so after the conference I received a call from Barry, just wanting to talk, I was surprised and touched. We spoke for an hour that day, the first of many long conversations we'd have over the next 18 months. For me, talking to Barry was like a series of precious mental breathing exercises— Every conversation made me want to slow down, take more in, think more, express myself more meaningfully. There always came, through his voice and his way of seeing and articulating, an intimate, heightened awareness of both our fragilities and our strengths as individuals and as a species. How much we need each other. Barry didn't believe in answers. He believed in paying attention and asking questions, holding ourselves accountable for the world we live in. He had an artist's tolerance for human contradiction and moral ambiguity. His ideal was a community unafraid of engagement with the mystery and uncertainty that is life. You know, when you write about the world, you try to learn something about its components, you know. When I was young, I really wanted to learn about wolves. They were so metaphorically rich. They translated their lives, translated a narrative into so many corners of human experience that if I devoted myself to that subject, I'd learn something. And if I was lucky, I'd be able to write about it in such a way that a person could say, I learned something from this book that I needed for my own life. In the 90s, I began to meet people who were so valuable to me as companions and a capacity for insight in specific areas that, that I didn't have. 
I became consciously aware of how indebted I was as a writer to other people. And then I began thinking about things like human plight. I went to a friend who was the head of a large NGO and I said, I really need to see human suffering. I need to be in it and see it and watch people try to manage it. Because if I talk about something like that and I just speak in the abstract, there, there, there's no substitute for putting your face into the wind. And then I went to northern Sumatra, to uh, Banda Aceh, where I don't, I mean, nobody has really the best numbers, but let's say 225,000 people died in about 20 minutes when the tsunami came ashore. And so, you know, it was, I was always on this quest for understanding plight. Um, I think if you understand plight as a writer, then when you're writing about anything, you understand that the reader, in one form or another, is a being who has suffered. And, and you have to, I think, as a writer, be cognizant of that and aware that the women and men who read are looking often quietly for some way to feel healed and that that is part of the function of story is to take care of people. So I knew if I saw all of this darkness that I probably would never write about it, but it would remind me when I was sitting at the typewriter don't forget what you saw, because in a different form, in a different way, with a different level of sensitivity, for most adults, everybody's been driven to their knees by divorce and loss of a child, whatever it is, some humiliating incident in which you were fired by people you had no respect for, whatever it is. And you have to be aware, um, I mean, the whole point of, of writing is to take care of your culture. You have to understand deeply that we don't need the writer. What we need is the story, because this keeps us alive. Our fragile hopes, our fragile aspirations, our longings of various kinds are sustained by a belief in some things that are found in stories. So you've always got to be thinking about the reader's need. So in Banda Ate, I took six men and a translator out to dinner, and I talked to them about shattered life. Uh, every man at the table was a fisherman. 8.30 on a Sunday morning, they were out at sea fishing. They saw the tsunami. It was less than two feet high, traveling at about 60 miles an hour, and they just saw it come through like that, and they knew what it was. Mm that wave was going to hit shallow water and rise up like a destructive animal and crash onto the city of, of Banda Aceh. So they knew, what are we fishing for? Everybody will be killed. So these, some of the men at the table had lost really 20 or so in the immediate family. Wife is dead, all my children are dead, my aunts and uncles are dead, my husband and father are dead, everybody's dead, and, and we'll never find them. They're out there in the Indian Ocean somewhere. 
I had I saw a photograph right taken right after the the tsunami hit when when nobody knew what how in the world do you deal with this many dead people really do you dig a, a massive hole and start bulldozing them in and relatives you just have to say we this is a hot humid country so a picture that I saw that I'll I'll never forget was the bodies laid out in a parking lot of those who had died and uh, ended up in the river. You know, other photos I saw, you could walk across the river on the bodies. And they were all face down and arms down in the water. And they were all, you took them all out of the river and laid them out in parking lots. So there were all of these bodies with rigor mortis that were lying on their backs with their arms raised to heaven. It just, it stopped you dead in your tracks to see that's plight and all of the weeping, broken, beyond sad relatives looking at their families like that. So I talked to these guys one night at dinner and asked them, essentially, how do you recover? And they were eloquent about something that had everything to do with human dignity, everything to do with purpose in life. You marry again in a culture where your wife was chosen by your parents, your parents are gone, so how do you date? You know, how do you adjust to something as catastrophic as that? They did. And they were having children, some of the children were, you know, seven months old or something. And destruction so hard to manage was being pushed aside by real human beings. And they were coming to life. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about international aid. It was about sense of self-worth, sense of human dignity. And being immersed in it helped me understand what my obligations were as a writer. But I went and did things like that deliberately because I thought, you know, if you're not careful, you begin to think you're somebody and that you're world-wise and aware. Uh, no. <laughs> you need to go out and discover how unworldwise you are. And when I got, I, I got to Jakarta and I was getting on the plane and I called my wife in Oregon and said, I have more faith in humanity now than when I got off the plane in Beirut, although I've seen nothing but plight. Mm. And that's the thing that I think of now when we express our anger and frustration about the social, political, and environmental situations we're in. Don't forget these six guys sitting around the table who refused, refused to join the dead. They were determined to stay alive, to have children, to build the enterprise back from disaster. Barry Lopez's own life was never easy or comfortable, exactly. He made sure of that through his constant, often physically arduous travels. Five years living in the Arctic, for example. But then, early last September, he suffered the first of several almost Job-like personal traumas. The holiday farm fire that was ravaging vast tracts of western Oregon reached the Mackenzie River Valley near Finn Rock, where Barry and his wife, Deborah Gwartney, lived. In all, 
more than 700 homes and outbuildings in the area, the entire community basically, burned to the ground, including the building on Barry's property that housed his archives of original manuscripts and correspondence. The entire history of his life as a writer, gone. The catastrophic effects of climate change that Barry had been describing and warning against for decades had finally reached his own front door. A couple of weeks later, now living with Deborah in a sublet apartment in Eugene, Barry learned that his cancer had returned. And then a couple of weeks after that, he suffered a massive cardiac event that required electric shock in the emergency room to bring him back to life. He came back and kept going. Every time we spoke, the same words would emerge. Community, storytelling, healing, responsibility, the suffering of others, the power and hope of young people. Despite the fire and his health, I never heard him complain. He said he felt incredibly lucky the life he'd had, to be a writer. He had learned so much from people, he said, and there was still so much more to know. Well, everywhere I've traveled and had the opportunity to talk to people about story, I've said, what do you mean by that? What is the, for you, who, who is the storyteller? What is the social responsibility of the storyteller or, or whatever? And so over time, I heard different points of view about what the ethical obligation of a storyteller is in a society. And, and one that I, I really love is uh, given to me by an Inuk, uh, Inuit person, and their word in, in Inuktitut is Isumutuk. And it means the person who creates the atmosphere in which wisdom reveals itself. So there's, first of all, there's, there's no perception that the storyteller is a wise person. He or she is the person who creates some kind of atmosphere, a story, that establishes an atmosphere in which a reader quickly sees that this elusive wild animal wisdom uh, has emerged and illuminates the world in which you are sitting there with your book. So you're, you're immediately compelled to think about your own life and your own ideas and how this book is opening things up for you. And that tells you that it's really all about the story, it's not about the writer or seeing the writer as a wise person. The, the why, you know, Eduardo Galeano, a Uruguayan writer, we were talking about this once, and, and he said, well, you know, the, the, the writer is the servant. The servant of your people, your society. And your work is to make something that allows the reader to see more fully the world in which they live and to answer the question, what do I mean by my life? What is the meaning of my life? So that, of course, has nothing to do with the storyteller. It has to do with the reader's achievement of self-awareness and an enhanced sense of self-worth. That's what you're trying to do as a writer. So I, I always feel a bit awkward when there's a lot of attention to you and not enough attention to how are we going to get through this? 
And especially now with the forcing pressure of global climate change, of ocean acidification and methane gas pouring out of the Siberian tundra, this is really big stuff. And we're doing nothing to build a society that will sustain the blow when it hits. We're just totally unprepared. For the most part, government doesn't know. They're too wedded to systems of economic manipulation and indebted to the people who control that. Who, who, who. Well, you know, we, we, all of us know this. All of us know that effective political inquiry is not around. And it's us and our children who will die from it. What? Why are we not doing something heroic and necessary, which is to say, I will not allow this to happen to my children. I want my children to have the same opportunities to imagine as I have had. And that's not going to happen if you pull out of the Paris Accords, etc. It's not going to happen. So no, you can't do that. We just sit quietly and hope that the right woman or man gets elected and it'll all change. Really? I don't think so. We have to empower each other to understand the avenues of approach. You know, the, I have no, no knowledge at all about how politics works. What I see is the disaster that all of us are living in. And if I can write something that encourages a kind of calmness and reflection in readers that really do know what to do, then that's my place, that's my job. So, you know, I mean, we have all of these frustrations about the suffering that comes all over the world because of a, a hyper-capitalistic systems of making profit, but we're silenced. What is it that is silencing us? I don't know. And it's not my job to know. My job is to wipe a bunch of stuff off the table and start to put things down, describe them well enough so they can be visualized, and then stand back while other women and men put this over here, arrange this over here. I depend on that to happen. For me, the notion of the hero is a bankrupt notion now. There was a time when we imagined cultural heroes and depended on them. But, you know, the real hero now is the community. To, to look to other parts of, the, of our own American culture, but to look to other women and men all over the world who are proposing changes that we can make that will make this what is coming less brutal. It is coming. It will be here. I mean, we've had a kind of... 70 years in paradise since the end of the Second World War, and we're watching the emergence of autocrats all over the world. Every day there's some new story that tells you democracy has died in this country. And, you know, you can say what you want about America, but we see these, the inutility of democracy as a system for achieving equality you know, we see it every day. And I wake up every morning thinking, how are we going to do this? 
How am I going to make my tiny little contribution to the world that ensures that my one-year-old grandson will have an opportunity to thrive? I've been rereading Barry a lot lately. I guess it's helping me to feel that I'm still on the phone with him somehow, hearing his voice, seeing the world as he did. I came across this passage from the epilogue of Arctic Dreams the other day. I wanted to share it with you. No culture has yet solved the dilemma each has faced with the growth of a conscious mind. How to live a moral and compassionate existence when one is fully aware of the blood, the horror, inherent in all life. When one finds darkness not only in one's own culture, but within oneself. If there is a stage at which an individual life becomes truly adult, it must be when one grasps the irony in its unfolding and accepts responsibility for a life lived in the midst of such paradox. One must live in the middle of contradiction, because if all contradiction were eliminated at once, life would collapse. There are simply no answers to some of the great persistent questions. You continue to live them out, making your life a worthy expression of a leaning into the light. I believe in human beings. I don't know that I have a sense of hope. It's like making that phone call to my wife from Jakarta. I saw the very best of us. In the worst of circumstances, I saw people that not only were poised and understood how to take care of each other, but who saved us from the great temptation of despair. And those people, I want to see them. Whatever elders we can perceive in cultures outside our own, I would like us to go and knock on the door and say, for God's sake, forgive us for 500 years of colonialism. Would you come and talk to us and offer us your ideas about how we get out of the situation? They don't come with answers. They come with articulate questions and a sense of common purpose that absolutely destroy the hierarchy of one class of people knows more than the other class of people. They look at each other and they, the same kind of thing I referred to earlier, when on these periods of time working with people in the interior of Antarctica, it's really bloody cold. And ordinary things you can't do, you have to melt glacial ice in order to get water, in order to drink water. You've got all of these things, horrible weather moving through, you're being pinned down in a tent for six days. That's just the stuff you have to deal with. But you look at each other and you communicate this sense of, we can manage this. And when you get a table full of people who don't all look like each other, and they're saying things about how do we address global climate change or whatever it is, you look at each other with this sense of respect and wonder at the capacity of another human being to see into the world more deeply than you do. And then another person sees more deeply than that person, or another person sees the outline, the adumbration of a kind of social organization that breaks the back of this hierarchical beast that keeps its claw on our backs and says, it shall be this way. We, we just have to revolt, as frankly, American Indian people have done for 500 years. We have punished American Indians for 500 years. We've killed them, burned them alive, burned their food, raped the women. And guess what? They're still here. 
they are still here, they still carry the wisdom that we once had but threw away for reasons mostly of profit and gain, and they, here's the unbelievable part, they're glad to sit down and talk with us. Two weeks before his death, Barry Lopez received the first Sun Valley Writers Conference Writer in the World Prize, given to a writer whose work expresses that rare combination of literary talent and moral imagination, helping us to better understand the world and our place in it. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.